And all of God's people said, thank you, Lord. And thank you, team. I'm going to make a statement, a startling statement. It will be startling to some of you. I take that back. I think it's going to be startling to most of you. Are you ready? Okay, ready to be startled. Immorality is not the most dangerous problem that we're facing. I told you. Immorality is not the most dangerous threat to our Christian values. Immorality is not the most worrisome difficulty that we are facing today. Now that I got your attention, (laughs) I want to explain this because by definition, immorality is the breaking of the moral standards. By definition, immorality is the breaking of the moral absolutes. Uh, Immorality, by its very definition, is the breaking of the moral code. Immorality is the breaking of the moral norms. And please listen carefully. Everyone can see when there is something that is broken, right? If you have eyes, you would see something that is broken. You recognize brokenness when you see it. And that is why I'm saying immorality is not the most dangerous enemy that we are facing today. But the most dangerous threat that we are facing from the schoolhouse to the big house is our morality. Our morality. What is our morality? Our morality says nothing about breaking the moral absolutes. Our morality says there is no such thing as moral standards. Our morality says there is no such thing as moral absolutes. And my beloved friends, that is what we are seeing in the streets of our cities today. That is what cancel culture is all about. That is what walk is all about. And that is what critical race theory is all about. And that is what our education system, the less many legislators and many of the courts are bringing about today. Today, what kids are learning is this. It is up to each one of you to decide his or her morality should be. And so a precious little five-year-old gets shot in the streets. A person beaten to death, and hundreds of spectators, and some of our politicians tell us that these crimes are just peaceful protesters. It's a summer of love. Give me a break. Today, there are numerous pressure groups. Listen to me. There are numerous pressure groups who are hell-bent. Yeah, you heard me right. Hell-bent on ramming our morality down our children's throat. So what is the answer? Well, the answer is not protesting like they do. The answer is not forming a a lobbying group. 
Our answer is what we launched earlier this year at Leading the Way, and that is called Awake America Campaign. The answer is for tens of thousands of God's people to pledge together and to, to, to sign a covenant to say, yes, we will pray for America on a daily basis. We will intercede for America that God might revisit us once again. That is our only hope for deliverance. Today I come to the main course in the Sermon in the Mount. You say, Michael, do you mean all the Beatitudes, everything else, or that just starter? Yep. We're going to get the main course. This is the main course. This is probably the heart and soul of what Christianity or the Christian faith is all about, because the heart and the soul of the Christian faith is Christ. So the Beatitudes were stepping stones, as I've been telling you for weeks. These are the stepping stones to get into a point where it becomes the salt and the light. And here, after this preparation, leading us to the very heart of the Christian faith, get ready to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 220. If you don't have your own Bible… It's page 1502 in the Pew Bible. Jesus said, do not think. Can you say that with me? Do. Come on, I want to hear it. I know you got masks, but it's okay. Do. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I'm going to come back to the whole passage in a minute. We're going to read it in a minute. But I immediately need to go and say, only Jesus could have known what they were thinking. (laughs) Only Jesus could have known what they were thinking. Many of you know that today, even some traditional Christian voices are crying out, screaming out with the top of their voices, let's get unhitched from the Old Testament. And I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you from the Word of God what a fallacy That is. They said the Ten Commandments, they are outmoded. They are irrelevant. They are obsolete. Beloved, here's the good news. Today, you're not going to hear Michael Yusuf speak. I'm not going to tell you my opinion because I don't have one. (laughs) I'm going to tell you what Jesus said, okay? It is not what I say. It's not what they say. It's what Jesus said. And now I want you to stand up as we read this magnificent heart of the gospel together. Matthew 5, beginning at verse 17 to 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from my law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commands and teach others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever practices and teaches these commands will... For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, 
you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Lord, without the spiritual eyes, without you opening our hearts, without you opening our minds, without you, Holy Spirit, take the words that you have authored to come and penetrate deep into our hearts, all that I would say will mean nothing. In fact, it will give people a headache. But I pray in Jesus' name, Holy Spirit, take over, for I, your servant, am listening, just like everybody else. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's an outline to these verses. And those of you, I know so many people, even online, are watching, they're taking notes. If you're taking notes, write them down. I'm going to make them a lot easier for you. You will never forget them. There are four things in the outline of this passage. First of all, Jesus is saying that God the Father is the author of the Old Testament. That's what they refer to as the law and the prophets. Secondly, God the Son is the authenticator of the Old Testament. Thirdly, no one should abrogate the Old Testament. Fourthly, God will only accept those whose righteousness exceeds or surpasses that of the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, every now and again, I work a little harder on my message to make it particularly those outlines, to kind of make you, what, well, really, to be truthful, I'm just trying to impress you <laughs> that I, can, I, can, I, I, I have a little bit of knowledge. Uh, so I have all those four words all starts with the letter A. See? Put, put the letter A four times and then fill in the space. Authorizing, authenticating. Here you go. You're getting it. Oh, it's right up here. Okay. <laughs> Abrogating. Sometimes I don't know what's up there. <laughs> and then accepting. Remember those. First of all, the law was authored by God the Father. It was authored by Him. The Bible said in Exodus chapter 20, God spoke all these words. Not some of these words. Not part of these words all these words. Let me give you an an interesting story that when I read it really kind of resonated with me. I want to illustrate it. It's from the world of baseball. But it's not baseball. It's a guy that I really love reading. He's very articulate. And uh, he wrote a book called Man at Work. His name is George Will. He tells of a true incident, true story, true incident that took place in a baseball game. And I'm going to read it. Uh, He says, Baseball umpires are carved from granite and stuffed with microchips. They are professional dispensers of pure justice. He said, Once when Babe Penelli called Babe Ruth out on strikes, Ruth made a populist argument. He reasoned fetaciously, from raw numbers to moral rights. And he said to the umpire, there are 40,000 people here who know that the last one was a ball. Tomato head. He said, Penelli replied 
with a measured stateliness of a John Marshall when he said, maybe so, but mine is the only opinion that counts. Now, beloved, let's go now from the ridiculous to the sublime, from baseball umpires to the great umpire of the universe, (laughs) the great judge of the universe. And you get very close to what Jesus is saying here in this passage. Jesus is saying here, listen carefully, uh, because I know Christians and Christian leaders are are infatuated with numbers and and, and just like Babe Ruth, you know, 40,000 said that, you know, the umpire couldn't care less about how many people. 40 million could be. They often are more concerned with that number and to please people than they are to please the umpire, the only one that counts, the judge of the universe. Try hard as they may, in the final analysis, there's only one opinion that matters. There is only one opinion, and that is the opinion and authority of the beneficent umpire of the whole universe. He's the author of the commandments, which he gave to Moses. Now, in order to get to the depth of this part, you need to understand that Jews made a mess of the commandments. So, I'm going to show you, actually, examples. They made a mess of them. And their mess that they created, they took it as authoritative as the Word of God itself. And one of the reasons Jesus was trying to do is basically tell us what the original intent was. As we talk about the Constitution and the original intent, Jesus was trying to tell them what the original intent of those commandments that they made a mess of. But before I get to that mess, I want to tell you that Jews at the time of Jesus, when they used the word the law, they had four things in mind. And you have to understand it from the context. So they referred to the Ten Commandments as the law. Uh, Sometimes they refer to the first five books of the Bible as the law. Uh, Then the other times uh, when they talk about the law and the prophet, meaning the whole Old Testament. Then there are some, not all of them, but some, would use the word the law of God referring to the book of interpretation of the law of God by so many rabbis with that book called the Mishnah, and they refer to it as the law, but not all of them, some of them. Here's the bottom line. You have to know when they refer to the law from the context of what they're saying. And of course, referring to the Mishnah or the book of interpretation by the rabbis as the law of God is totally false. They made it equal to the Word of God. We made a lot of things equal to the Word of God now. (laughs) Now, let me give you just some example to give you a taste of how these boys stressed the wrong thing. When God gave a commandment, one of the commandments is the Sabbath rest. Why? Because God knew by nature we're going to be enslaved to our iPhones and iPads, and we're going to be workaholics, and we're going to try to work hard and make money, and we'll work day and night, day and night, day and night. So God said, no, there is one day a week in which you should stop working and focus on me. See, that is the very heart of the law for the Sabbath. 
And so the rabbis came in and they said, well, what does that mean? We need to really explain it to people. So they say, carrying any load is a breaking of the Sabbath. A bunch of lawyers came in and said, no, no, well, you've got to define what a load is. You understand what I mean? It's like somebody who says, you have to, under, you have to define what, what is, is. And some of you not old enough to remember that. It depends on your definition of what is, is. That's what, these, <laughs> that's what these lawyers were doing. So they said, well, we need to define what a load is. And so a bunch of them came in and said, any load that is bigger than a fig is breaking of the Sabbath. And the other one says, well, any milk that is larger than a swallow, just one swallow, to wit your tonsils, <laughs> is, a, is a breaking of the Sabbath. The other was to come in and said, no, any honey that more than you place on a wound, that would probably a, two drops of honey, is a load at the breaking of the Sabbath. Then another group come in and said, no, 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 uh, any oil that's more than enough to anoint a small part of the body, that's a load. And my goodness, it goes on and on and on. I just don't, I'm, I'm watching for your time. <laughs> it's entertaining if it wasn't sad. As far as the Pharisees were concerned, all of these op opinions of these, of these um, uh, rabbis are as weighty as the Word of God itself. But when Jesus was referring to the law here, He specifically was talking about the Ten Commandments. Why? Because God the Father is the author of the Ten Commandments. And that is why Jesus said, when He gave the Ten Commandments, the Lord said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, just in case. I want to identify myself as the author. Secondly, that is why Jesus came to authenticate the commandments. Jesus came to fulfill the commandments. Jesus came to complete the commandments. Jesus uh, is the only one, the only one, the only one who ever lived on the face of the earth. He was able to keep all of the Ten Commandments all of the time. None of us could do it. And that is why he was sinless, perfect son of man and son of God. In fact, he came to show us that the law actually pointed to him. In fact, the entire Old Testament is pointing to him. From the time the law was announced with thunder and lightning all the way to the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, that is all of them all of them, all of them were pointing to Jesus. Please hear me right. This is very important. To fulfill is the opposite of to destroy. Up to this point, no one, as I said, no one was able to keep the commandments, only Jesus. This is another way of saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of the longing of all of the Old Testament. Look at it this way. The Old Testament was like a house without a roof. Jesus is the roof. <laughs> the Old Testament, a sketch, Jesus is, gave a definition. 
Jesus not only uh, bring about the, the, the explanation and the fulfillment of the law, but He did not bring about totally new teaching like some people would have us believe. He came to authenticate the Old Testament. He came to clarify its original intent, original meaning. How? By perfectly obeying the law that God the Father has authored. And that is why, listen carefully, all the ceremonial laws, all of the ceremonial laws ended with Jesus. Can I get an amen? Because all of the ceremonies, all of the sacrifices, all fulfilled in Jesus alone. Let me explain this. Let me explain this. Jesus and Jesus alone became the great high priest. Jesus and Jesus alone became the sacrifice for all of our sins. Jesus and Jesus alone became the ultimate feast and celebration. You see, in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies, but Jesus entered into the heavenly tabernacle. The high priest in the Old Covenant entered once a year. Jesus entered once and for all. The high priest in the Old Covenant went beyond the veil but Jesus tore the veil in two. The high priest in the Old Covenant offered many sacrifices, but Jesus, our great high priest, offered only one sacrifice. The high priest in the Old Covenant offered sacrifices for his own sin, then the sin of others, but Jesus offered his body only for the sin of others. The high priest in the Old Covenant offered the blood of bulls, but our Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest, offered his own precious blood. The high priest in the Old Covenant always was temporary, but Jesus, our great high priest, is the eternal and permanent high priest. The high priest in the Old Covenant were changeable, but our great high priest, Jesus, is unchangeable. The high priests in the Old Covenant was continual succession, one after another, but Jesus is the great high priest who's forever the high priest. High priest sacrificed for, uh, for sacrifice was imperfect, but our Jesus, the great high priest, had the only perfect sacrifice. Even the ceremonial offerings found their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why they all ended with Jesus. The burnt offering was a symbol of purity and perfection, but Jesus Christ Himself is perfection incarnate. The meal offering was a symbol of dedication, but Jesus was the authentic picture of dedication to His Father. The peace offering was a symbol of peace with God, but Jesus Christ now is our peace. The sin offering was a symbol of substitution, but Christ Jesus Himself is our substitution. Even the feasts in the Old Testament found their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Passover, which was the celebration of the physical salvation of Israel from the land of the slavery in Egypt, Jesus, our Passover, gives us eternal salvation. It's forever 
and ever and ever. The Feast of the Unleavened Bread was a symbol of purity and holiness. Jesus is our holiness. The Feast of the First Fruit celebrated God's blessing. Um, and when Jesus rose from the dead, He became the first fruit for all who have fallen asleep in Jesus. The Feast of the Tabernacle meant for, to, to represent a union with God, but only Jesus is our true uniting us with God the Father. You see, Jesus authenticated the Old Testament. He authenticated it. God the Father authored it. God the Son authenticated it. Thirdly, I want to say that the God the Holy Spirit helps us, empowers us, strengthens us to not abrogate it. Did you get that? Say amen. I'm going to explain it. Because I want to tell you, it is impossible. You, you heard me right. It is impossible to accept the authority of Jesus as Savior and Lord without accepting the authority of the Scripture. They stand together. Anybody says to you, ah, Jesus is my Savior, but I just don't believe all the other parts in the Bible that I don't like. Phony with a capital F. <laughs> I know how to spell phony, but I just thought you, 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 you'll kind of make sure you're, li you're alive. See, they stand together. To accept Jesus as your Savior and Lord is to accept all that He taught in the Scripture. Listen to what Jesus said. Not me, thank God. Not a megachurch pastor. Whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I know it is fashionable these days. I know, I know, I know, because I listen, I stay in touch with what's going on in the world. It is fashionable with some evangelical preachers and teachers to say, you know, the commandments are outmoded. The commandments ought to be replaced by the Sermon on the Mount. And all I want to do is scream from the top of my voice, are you kidding me? Do you know that, that the Sermon on the Mount demands more than the Ten Commandments? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus upped the ante, not lower the bar. I'll give you an example. In the commandment, it said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Who did Jesus say? Yeah, I know you heard that, but let me tell you something. The moment you lust after somebody, you already committed adultery. Ooh. Huh. He upped the ante, didn't, didn't lower the bar. Oh, we should replace the Ten Commandments with the Sermon on the Mount. They're probably hoping that people don't know what's in the Sermon on the Mount. They said, Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not murder. Jesus said, I know you, but here's what I tell you. If you harbor anger and bitterness toward your brother or sister, you already committed murder. Tell me that that is not a very high standard. On and on and on I could go. But listen carefully. The burden of my life for the rest of my life is to equip you to discern 
the false teaching that goes on around us. It's the burden of my heart. It's what keeps me up at night. Nothing else. And they come and say, we no longer live under the law. We live under grace. Well, of course, that's a truism. We know that. That's true. Yeah. But when they they say that, they mean grace is a license. License. That's what they mean by it. Please don't, don't miss what I'm going to tell you. Don't miss what I'm going to tell you. Jesus is not, is not, is not, is not. How many of these? Is not saying that we're saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. Don't misunderstand me. He's never said that, I, and I'm not saying that. No, and a million knows. The law is a mirror that tells me that I'm a sinner and heading for hell. It tells me that I'm a sinner. I'm in desperate need for the Savior who kept the law perfectly, who's invited me to hang on his coattail. That's the only way I'm going to make it to heaven. But nonetheless, these heresies that keep popping their ugly head. And they do. Every generation, somehow somebody, and they said, oh, this is very clever. Isn't that a, no, this old heresy from the third century and fourth century and the fifth century. These are heresies. They're old. <laughs> they just come up with new dresses. Throughout history, there have been some famous heretics who have tried to get us to be unhitched from the Old Testament. And they ended up in horror. Let me give you a couple of examples. One, a man named Marcion in the 300s. Marcion actually rewrote the New Testament, taking out all the Old Testament stuff out. Can you believe the gumption? I don't know how to call it gumption, but whatever it is, it's terrifying to me. He naturally erased this passage from the New Testament. He took it out. Later, one of his followers even went further, and he exchanged the verbs in this text that I've just read to you. And so it reads, I have come not to fulfill the law and the prophets, but to abolish them. Think about this. Think about this. And therefore, my beloved friends, my beloved friends, my beloved friends, listen, don't be surprised when you hear some modern preacher preaching this stuff, nothing new under the sun. Or that wicked monk, Russian monk, Rasputin. Most of you probably heard the name Rasputin, this evil man who had a spell. He literally cast a spell on the empress of Russia. If you've ever seen any of the documentary, read about it. And therefore, he was given a free hand to teach falsehood to the Russian people, and he shamelessly promoted sin and evil in in Russia. As a matter of fact, his famous saying is this, if Russia sinned more, she would experience more of God's grace. Does that sound familiar? We know what happened to that Russia, to the pre-Bolshevik Russia, the pre-communist Russia. We know what happened to it. Beloved, listen to me. Listen to me. Today, we are in the same danger as pre-communist Russia. Listen to me. Our morality will lead to the horrors 
of socialism and communism with, with, with its sh with being shamelessly brought, proclaimed and, and promoted by some called Christians. When our morality reigns supreme, we are opening ourselves not only to confusion and chaos, but actually dictatorship. And listen, I am going to keep on saying this. I'm at almost 72. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to keep on saying this until the Lord either close my eyes in death or I walk out of here in chains. I'll never stop proclaiming the truth. Don't ever forget. Don't ever forget that God's moral laws are the reflection of the character of God. Don't ever forget that. Listen to what Paul said in Romans 6.15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbid! May it never be. So question, what is grace? What is grace? Listen to me. Grace removes the penalty of the law, but only for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God. Praise God. The commandments reveal our sin to us, but grace of God forgives our sins when we repent. The commandments reveal our hopelessness in trying to obey God in our own strength. But the Holy Spirit gives us the power and the strength to obey. Can I get an amen? amen. So let me summarize so far. The Father, God the Father is the author of the law. Jesus, God the Son, is the authenticator. Thirdly, God the Holy Spirit empowers us not to abrogate the law and the prophet. For, fourthly and finally, finally, I was speaking this last Thursday. It just reminded me. I said, finally, I remembered I was, I'm speaking for two hours, okay? These Hundreds of church leaders, heads of denominations all over the Middle East. It was first started in Egypt, but then many other leaders from around the Arab world, they all joined in in Zoom, and I spoke for two hours. I was drenching by the time I finished, but I said finally three times. I said, well, Paul did the same thing. <laughs> but boy, they were so gracious, they want me to go on another hour. <laughs> I'm done. Fourthly and finally, God will only accept those whose righteousness exceeds, super, goes over and above that of the Pharisees and the scribes. You know, I remember when I was a young Christian and I read this, I said, rocks of rock. There is no way. I mean, on the surface you read this, impossible. I mean, these guys were so meticulous with the details. These guys were, were, were scrupulous about keeping the law. I mean, they wrote themselves uh, sticky uh, uh, papers everywhere on the walls and even on their forehead. Don't forget, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget. <laughs> Who am I going to? My, my righteousness exceeds theirs. There is no way. 
I can't keep up with that. But please, 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 I beg you, if, you, if I lost you at any point of this, t- this time, I don't want to lose you in this one because this is going to make you shout. And if it doesn't, then you're Presbyterian, <laughs> which means you're going to shout internally. <laughs> Listen, if meticulousness and keeping of the religious rituals would take you to heaven, I mean, these guys will be at the front of the bus. But the only righteousness that pleases the Lord is a righteousness that no one, no one, no one, no one can accomplish. I am not discouraging you. As I said, I'm going to let you shout in a minute. What is that righteousness that exceeds, surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees? It is the very first step of the Beatitudes. It's the first step. Declaring spiritual bankruptcy. Of coming to the Lord, Lord, I have no righteousness of my own. I have nothing to stand on. I have no righteousness that put me in the right standing with you. There is no amount of good that I can do that will gain me right, that righteousness. And then, and only then, you hear the voice of Jesus say, Welcome, welcome. You made it the first step. Welcome. And then he continues. Only my righteousness that I give you is that righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes. Only when you cling to my righteousness will get you to heaven. Only taking upon you my righteousness that will make you acceptable to God the Father. All these religious hypocrites, all those show-off religious people, all these self-sufficient frauds, they will never make it to my Father's heaven. Only those who have nothing and declare that they have nothing to offer. That's what poverty in spirit means. That's why it's the first step of climbing the ladder. Blessed, happy, makarios are those who are poor in spirit. Please, please trust me when I tell you that Jesus is saying hypocrisy is not a substitute for holiness. Jesus is saying rituals is no substitute for righteousness. I couldn't help but think, some of you know this, a handful of you now left still from those old days. I used to be a volunteer in one of those ritualistic churches. I strictly volunteer. I, I wouldn't refuse to go on their payroll. I said, no, no, I'm going to be a volunteer, so I'm going to stay independent. They were highly ritualistic. And man, if during the ceremony, if I turned the wrong way or did the wrong thing or said the wrong word, they look at me as if I've broken all of the commandments. But if I would say, I'm going to contradict Jesus and say that He is not the only way, they would clap and say, hey, what a courageous thing to do. That's how it is. That's how it is. 
Now, I'm talking to everybody here and everybody who's watching, millions of people on Kingdom Set watching live around the world. And I want, to, I, want, I want to be honest with you in the last minute. I'm going to be blunt, actually. Now, whether you are a person who has bought into this horror of amorality, or you are a person who thinks that you're good enough and righteous enough to make it to heaven, both opposites, but both will end up in eternity of torment. And that is why the invitation is now. Jesus is saying, come to me now while you can, because the time is going to come when the door was shut and nobody will be able to enter. Come to him. Hang on his coattail. Enter heaven on his robe of righteousness, not yours. Will you do that with me as we pray? Father, I don't know everybody, either here or even watching, but you do. The Holy Spirit brought them to this moment, to this time, uh, to this message, because, Father, you want to save them because you love them, just as you loved me, and you saved me from my self-righteousness and from my endeavoring to do better every day, and I failed miserably. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus, bring all those elect to your kingdom right now. In Jesus' name I pray, and all of God's people said amen.